For many churches, if they touch the book of Esther, they spend one week in it. We decided against that, and this is our seventh week expositing the book, and it has been fruitful for our walk with Christ. We've laughed, we've wept, we've been dazzled by the grace of God and mystified by the ways of God. I've attempted to do two things in this study. First, to desanitize Esther. I have not told you to get your little girls to dress up like a princess and strive to be like Esther. That's not the point of the book. It's not God's intent. It hasn't been for the previous seven chapters, and it's not for the next two. Now, I don't know how speakers get away with doing that. Actually, I do. They ignore the chapter and a half that we're going to unpack today, where this little princess crucifies ten boys in her front yard. You're not going to see that on a Sunday school flannel graph. I sought to redeem the biblical narrative by inflicting it with sin, contaminating it, dirtying it up, or better, showing you how Xerxes, Mordecai, and Esther dirtied it up. One of the ladies in our church wrote, a, wrote the church office a few weeks ago, and I thought I'd read you her email. She said, I just wanted to send you a quick note and thank you for desanitizing the book of Esther. One of my chief frustrations with countless women's Bible studies is that they make the women in these narratives the heroes of the story, scrubbed of all defects. There is no reflection of the actual state of the human heart, hence no compelling bridge to the gospel, and no application dealing with the shame and guilt that we carry as a result of sin, or understanding of God's overarching sovereignty that allows him to redeem and use the worst of us. For years, I assumed I was, hope, I was a hopeless mess because I could not relate to any of the women I was introduced to in those studies. I really appreciate the care with which you handle the truth. End letter. We attempted to present Esther for what it is, a biblical soap opera, the days of Esther's life. First, I wanted to desanitize Esther. Secondly, I wanted to show you how Christ completes Esther. Christ fulfills Esther, or better, he fills it up fills it with meaning. You can't fully understand Esther until you see how it points to Christ. You have to look at this book through the lens of the cross. We read Esther forward. I've avoided moralizing the book, pulling little principles. Be like Esther, don't be like Haman. Charles Spurgeon said well, and I quote, No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. I love Spurgeon. Our goal is to have a desanitized Esther and a Christ-centered Esther. Now, our text today breaks down into two movements. The story of divine reversals and the rules of holy war. So I want to show you how each movement happens in the text on a small scale and then in Christ on a greater scale. We'll take them one at a time. First, the story of divine reversals. You find this in Esther chapter 1. Uh, Esther, Esther chapter 8, um, the entire chapter. So on, on vacation, my wife and I, with our kids, we'll play a card game, Uno. Any of you ever played the game Uno? Yeah, Uno has some great cards in it. The skip card is one. Uh, Weston's already said Uno. He's about to lay down his last card, and then I throw down the skip card. Uh, the draw two card is a favorite as well. The draw four card is deadly. My kids love to throw that when I only have one card left. But of all the great cards, Uno does have a really lame card. And it's the reverse card. 
It simply changes the order. It doesn't change destinies. However, in Esther and in the game of life, the reverse card is the most prominent, the most exciting. You know who loves God's reverse cards? The scared, the hurting, the lonely. If you're rich, popular, in control on top of the world, God's reverse card scares you. Throughout history, with few exceptions, God's people have been the minority, the hated, the outcast, the fringe of society. That's why we wait for God to throw down his reverse card. And he's thrown down quite a few in scripture. Abraham and Sarah are childless until God throws the reverse. And now Abraham is the father of many nations. Joseph is sold into slavery and imprisoned until God throws the reverse. And then he's appointed head over all Egypt. Moses and Israel are pursued by the Egyptian army. They are trapped on all sides, no way to escape. And then suddenly the sea opens, lets Israel pass through, and the Egyptian pursuers are drowned. God often waits until the last moment to drop the reverse. Divine reversals are, are God's way of having the final say. We've attacked the doctrine of luck in our study. And luck is a doctrine because people live by it. A four-leaf clover, not walking under a ladder, a horseshoe on a wall, open end up. Some of you have a, a rabbit's foot. How lucky was that rabbit that couldn't even keep his own foot? <laughs> there is no luck in Esther, only reversals. And God is famous for his divine reversals throughout the book. I, I have purposely avoided pointing them out to you until we reached this place. Before we dig into this particular text, I'm going to go back to the beginning and point out all the reversals. We titled chapter 1, Living in the Shadow of the Throne. You may remember Xerxes ruling over 127 provinces from modern-day Libya and Africa all the way to Pakistan and Asia. It was the largest empire in history. He was an unstoppable, unhinged, unstable tyrant of a king. People lived before his throne in fear. He threw a banquet that lasted 187 days. He served the finest food, filet mignon, braised beef tips, lamb chops, any and everything you could imagine. He invited his generals and governors to attend. He wanted to convince them that they could go to war with Greece and defeat them. Now historically, we know that this banquet was his great war council. Day after day, he put on display his power and might, parading all of his soldiers through the banquet hall parading all of his chariots, parading all of his weapons. And at the end, he wanted to parade his wife, Vashti. But Vashti wasn't having it, so he banished her so he wouldn't lose face before the war council. If he couldn't control his wife, how could he control his army? Between chapter 1 and 2, Xerxes takes a beat down by the Greeks. It wasn't pretty. The undefeated king becomes the defeated king. It's a power reversal. In chapter 2, we titled it an international beauty pageant. Xerxes' team sees that he's struggling with this defeat. And on top of that, he misses his banished wife. So they manipulate him, playing to his wounded ego. They pipe up. Let's begin a search for a beautiful young virgin for you, king. A whole contest, lots of them. And when you see these ladies, you will no longer miss Vashti. Vashti be looking nasty compared to them. They easily convinced his weak mind, so they held an open contest in search of the next Miss Persia. 
The story then zooms in to a man and a woman named Mordecai and Esther. They are cousins, but he's 15 years older than her. When her parents died, he adopted her as his own. Mordecai was less like a cousin and more like a father. The author reveals that they are away from God's land, away from God's people, away from God's ways. They are Persianized and they like it. She enters the disgusting contest and wins the crown by winning the bed. First Vashti wears the crown, now Esther wears the crown. It's a queen reversal. And by the way, Vashti was royalty. The king only married as queen women from five different families. They had to be a certain stock. Some scholars believe that Vashti was the great-great-granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar. I'm not sure about that, but I am sure about this. For the first time in Persian history, the king reverses centuries of tradition and allows the crown to rest on the head of a common peasant, Esther. We title chapter 3, A Family Feud. Mordecai saves the king from an assassination attempt, but it goes ignored. In the text, where you would expect Mordecai to receive the promotion another man does, Haman. He's the antagonist in the story. He's the villain. Haman becomes the prime minister. It is a promotion reversal. The two of them reignite a clan rivalry, worse than the Hatfields and the McCoys. The villainous Haman hates Mordecai so much, he orders the utter annihilation of his entire race. All Jews will die on December the 13th. We title chapter 4 for such a time as this. After hearing the news of their impending destruction and the destruction of their people, Mordecai and Esther are converted to God. Mordecai mourns in the streets wearing sackcloth and ashes. He's going public for the first time. He tells Esther, Who knows if you came to the kingdom for such a time as this. They were, they were cold toward God, then suddenly they were hot toward God. And the only explanation is a spiritual reversal. We title chapter 5 and 6, Once Upon a Sleepless Night. Esther goes to the king to request a meeting. The king agrees. It's planned for the next day. She is going to tell the king that Haman is planning to kill her and also her people. That night, Haman builds a gallows which is a cross to hang Mordecai. He's not going to wait till December the 13th to kill this Jew. Also that night, the king couldn't sleep. So his bodyguard reads him a bedtime story of how this random guy named Mordecai saved his life five years ago. The next morning, the king orders Haman to honor Mordecai by placing him on the king's horse in the king's clothes and riding him throughout the streets. Mordecai was wearing sackcloth and ashes, but now he's wearing the king's robe. Haman was wearing the king's robe, but now he's wearing sackcloth and ashes. It's a, it's a clothing reversal. We entitle chapter 7, a victim of his own invention. Esther finally spills the beans to the king. He's infuriated. He takes a walk in his rose garden. Haman bows down to beg mercy from Esther, which in itself is another reversal. Haman started this whole thing because a Jew, Mordecai, would not bow down to him, and now he's bowing down before a Jew. The one who wanted to kill the Jews is bowing before a Jew. Eventually, the king has Haman impaled on the gallows designed for Mordecai. It's a death reversal. This narrative is full of irony, and in chapter 8, they keep going. The reversals keep coming. There's an economic reversal. Notice in chapter 8, verse 1. 
On that day, King Xerxes gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Because Haman was executed as a traitor to the throne, his property was confiscated. And since Esther was the person wronged by Haman, the king bestows Haman's estate on her. It is an economic reversal. She gets Haman's horse and buggy, Haman's house, Haman's refrigerator, Haman's bank account, which had to be substantial. Notice the end of verse 1. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. Now this had to be a weird conversation. Goes into the bedroom. Uh, king, husband, Xerxes. Uh, you know that guy who, who works down the hall from the Oval Office? The guy who saved your life? The guy for whom Haman built the gallows? Yes. Oh, well, that's my cousin. He's like an adopted dad. He, he raised me. And King's like, wait, first I find out you're a Jew. Th then you're adopted. And now your cousin's been working for me for years? Talk about luck. You must have a four-leaf clover in your pocket. In verse 2, we have a political reversal. Notice, and the king took off his signet ring. Apparently, he had men rip this ring from the cold, dead hands of Haman on the gallows. And now he gives it to Mordecai. Haman was the prime minister. Now Mordecai is the prime minister. It's a political reversal. And so you're like, Kyle, problem solved. Let's end the book. What a short sermon. Close it, close it up. Friends, uh, this is not going to be a short sermon today, just to give you a heads up. Uh, notice that Esther doesn't kick back and enjoy the winter palace of Susa. Haman may be dead, but this edict of death is still very much alive. The edict was sealed with the king's royal insignia and it is now a law, the law of the Medes and the Persians. Notice verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept. Esther abandons her cool, calculated strategy of approaching the king that she used in chapter 5. There's no royal dignity here. She throws herself at his feet, begging him to do more. In verse 4, when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, let's pause here. Notice the long preface to her speech. She regains some of her courtly composure and she delivers a four-part preface. If it pleases the king, if I have found favor in your sight, if this thing seems right to you, if I am pleasing in your eyes, four. If these four, then write an edict to reverse Haman's edict of death. She, she can't hold it together. She loses it again in verse 6. I can't bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people. The king said, in effect, look, I've given you all this money. I've killed your enemy for scheming against your people. I put Haman as my prime minister. You two are going to be powerful and rich and famous and, and safe. Put Mordecai as my prime minister. What else do you want? And Esther says, it's not about me. It's about my people. And they're not safe. They need to be rescued. End this edict. Esther. I can't end the edict. I pride myself on infallibility. I'm never wrong. If I repeal the law, I'm admitting I made a mistake. I'm Xerxes. I don't make mistakes. There isn't any way to escape this clause, there isn't any secret way out. The edict of death will be carried out. 
But there is one option. I can't repeal the old law, but I can pass a new one. A new edict that kind of, but not really, contradicts the previous one. A counter edict. And I can let both edicts go and may the best edict win. In verse 8, Xerxes takes his hand off the steering wheel for the second edict, just like he did with the first. Mordecai, you write it and I'll sign it. There were two months and ten days between the edict Haman made in chapter 3, verse 7, and the edict that Mordecai made in chapter 8, verse 9. And the author of the book of Esther is careful to show us that in Mordecai's new edict, we have a blow-by-blow undoing of Haman's original decree. So I'm bringing all of you a Christmas present today. And you know what my Christmas presents are. They're charts. All right, so this is your Christmas present. Let's compare the two edicts. Haman's edict summons the king's scribes, and so does Mordecai's. Haman's letter sealed with the ring. Mordecai's letter sealed with the ring. Haman's letter was to non-Jews, stating to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews on this day. Like deer season, it was open season. Plunder, after you kill them, plunder all their homes, weapons, cattle, take it all. Mordecai's letter was a letter to the Jews stating to destroy, same exact language, destroy, kill, and annihilate anyone attempting to harm you on this day. You can fight back. Both decrees are publicly displayed as law, and in both cases, the couriers go out in haste. Now, no one in the kingdom knew who would take Haman's place as prime minister. This whole ring ceremony we looked at, it it happened in the king's quarters. That was private. So the people are waiting outside of the palace, and then they see, verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Look, these aren't Jews. These are people from 127 provinces. Apparently, no one liked Haman as prime minister. So they're all cheering for this foreign minority leader, Mordecai. And then notice verse 16. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Stop there. In chapter 4, verse 3, the Jews responded to Haman's edict, the first edict, with four kinds of distress. Mourning, fasting, weeping, and wailing. Now the Jews respond to the second edict, Mordecai's edict, with four kinds of delight. Light, gladness, joy, and honor. Let me just break the situation down. This edict sent a warning to the Persians that they are no longer going after unarmed Jews. It will not be a picnic of plundering. They will be risking their lives and the lives of their families because now the Jews can retaliate in self-defense. What Mordecai's edict effectively does is communicate to the Persians that if they all restrain themselves, no one gets hurt. No one dies. Just keep your greed in check. In verse 14, royal, royal stallions, equivalent of today's racehorses, they stampede across the 127 provinces. The Persian Pony Express gallops at full speed across the Arabian desert, along the banks of the Euphrates River, down into India, and over into Africa. Two months ago, they were the messengers of death. Now the Jews hear the sound of these hoofbeats again probably sending a a shudder down their Jewish spines. 
Another one? What is this edict going to say? That they can use chemical warfare on us? Then the jockey jumps off his horse, nails the new edict beside the old one. Some Jewish man finally musters up the bravery to read it. Suddenly, hope fills his heart. Joy floods his eyes. A smile takes over his face. He yells to his friends, come on over here. I, I thought we were like Garth Brooks. We had friends in low places. But look at this edict. We have friends in high places. And a nationwide celebration erupts. And my, my, how the tables have turned. Now I'm going to back away from the story a bit and ask you a question. Why is it that we love reversals? We can't get enough of them. That's why the movie industry is built on reversals. Reversals sell. Let me prove this to you. In, in high culture and blue collar culture. Okay, high culture. Great literature is filled with great reversals. Shakespeare mastered the art of reversals in his tragedies like Romeo and Juliet and in his comedies like The Twelfth Night. Now let me show you this in um, bl blue-collar culture. The great theologian Dolly Parton uh, captured it in her song, Working 9 to 5. Here are the lyrics. Working 9 to 5, what a way to make a living. Barely getting by, it's all taken and no given. They just use your mind and they never give you credit. It's enough to drive you crazy if you let it. They let you dream just to watch them shatter. You're just a step on the boss man's ladder. But you got dreams he'll never take away. You're in the same boat with a lot of your friends waiting for the day your ship will come in. And the tide's going to turn and it's all going to roll your way. Movies, literature, songs, all reversals. Why do we love reversals? Three reasons. First, your heart yearns for a personal reversal. Deep down, you're bothered that your enemies prosper. You desire a reversal like Nelson Mandela. You're in jail with no light. Then suddenly, you're the head of South Africa overnight. Psalm 30 is the song of reversals. It is sometimes called Mordecai's psalm. It begins talking about enemies, and, and then it says this. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. And some of you are praying for a reversal like that. And I want to infuse hope within you. What appears inevitable is not. What appears powerful is not. God can show up in your story and change everything in an instant. And this is not a promise that everything in your life will be perfect. But it is a promise that with God, there is always a possibility that he could show up and reverse everything. The cancer could be cured. The marriage could be healed. The rebellious child could return. The unemployment could be rescinded. God is a God of reversals. And God has an override button. Some of you are non-Christians. And I'm praying that God will reverse you. You are not too far gone for God to step in, grab a hold of your life, and reverse your curse. Reverse your course. Give you a spiritual reversal. One minute you have no desires to know this Christ, and then the next minute you're willing to die for this Christ. What happened? One minute you're totally blind to your sin, and then the next minute it's everywhere. 
You see your own depravity. Explain it. Spiritual reversal. Second reason we love reversals is because reversals are built into our DNA. Every reversal you see, whether it's in song, movie, literature, when you see it, read it, it's like a spiritual deja vu. There's a great reversal to which all the reversals in Esther point. God's little reversals point to his great reversal. Satan had Jesus Christ on the cross, stretched him wide and hung him high, and he died and he was buried. Then in the greatest reversal in human history, Jesus rose from the dead. We were without righteousness and with sin, but in a reversal, Jesus took our sins and gave us his righteousness. Thirdly, you await a final reversal. J.R.R. Tolkien coined a word, created it. You catastrophe. A good catastrophe. It means the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with the joy that brings tears. He likened the sudden relief to the snapping back into the place of a limb that had long been put out of joint. You know why you love Esther? Why you love you catastrophes? Because it's a sudden glimpse of truth. This is indeed how things really do work. There is a you catastrophe coming. Jesus is coming again to reverse the curse and friends to wipe away your tears. Chapter 8, we see the story of divine reversals. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 16, we see the rules of holy war. Don't worry, this one isn't quite as long. Eleven months have passed since Haman wrote the first decree. Nine months have passed since Mordecai wrote the second decree. Now the ill-fated day has arrived. In Nehemiah, the Jews are standing side by side to build a wall. In Esther, the Jews are standing side by side ready to brawl. One small group against 127 provinces. Chapter 9, verse 1. When the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them. In the Hebrew, the verb translated hoped is a rare verb and it refers to someone waiting with great anticipation. In other words, some of the peoples were licking their chops considering that these Jews would be easy prey. We'll have new homes, fields, cattle, and clothing before the sun sets. And the next three words are my favorite words in chapter 9. The reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Now, how did they do this? Well, they followed the, the rules, the rules of the edict. Uh, one of the rules was you only kill those who try to kill you. So the edict doesn't say, go out into the streets and kill anyone that looks at you the wrong way. No, it doesn't say that. It says, if anyone shows up at your house and they're trying to do you harm, trying to do harm to your family, you can defend yourself in that moment. Self-defense is permitted. And the second rule was unusual. Have sticky fingers. 
In other words, after you kill your enemies, take their things. How many of you have ever had a package taken off of your doorstep? Did you raise your hand? They call people that steal packages off your doorstep porch pirates. The Jews, after they killed their enemies, were to be porch pirates. Take everything. But please notice, the Jews understand the execution of this edict as governed by the ancient command of holy war. They don't care what Xerxes' paper says. They know God's rules for holy war. And, and this isn't the only episode of holy war in the Bible. Episode number one was when Abram went to war to rescue his nephew Lot. And when he came home triumphant, the king of Sodom offered him the plunder. Abraham refused the plunder lest the wicked Sodom be said to be the source of his prosperity. And from that point onwards, especially during Israel's conquest of the promised land, they would touch none of the possessions of their enemies. That's episode one. Episode two, remember when Israel defeated Jericho and then they went on to attack Ai. But they were utterly defeated. Why? Because Achan stole some of the plunder. Three times the author of Esther points out that the Jews did not lay hands to the plunder. Verse 10, verse 15, verse 16. Now what were the results of this holy war? We find out from verses 7 and 8 they killed Haman's sons. After their death, Esther requested from the king that Haman's ten boys be impaled like daddy dearest was on the gallows. Why impale the sons? Why ask? It's a bit of a grisly request. In sports, they call this running up the score. In Israel, they call this feeling God's roar. Deuteronomy 21 teaches that there is a divine curse placed on anyone hanged on the gallows, hanging on the cross, dying on a tree. Haman had no seed left to carry on his unholy war against the seed of the Jews. Now, they didn't stop there. They killed enemies inside the palace. Notice verse 11. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel, now this is the king's protected compound, was reported to the king, verse 12, and the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now notice there's no question mark there. It's not a question. There's a humorous element. In the Hebrew, almost slapstick. If, if the Jews have done this well in Susa, think what it must be like in the rest of the provinces. So let's look and see what they did in the rest of the provinces. According to verses 16 and 17, they killed 75,000 people. The body count is very high. Wives are weeping in the streets. Grandmas are wearing all black. The funeral home is packed. They can't dig six feet deep holes fast enough. Bodies are stacking high. And how could they do this? Well, according to verse 3, the Jews had help. All of the state employees joined in to protect them. And some of you are thinking something that you're afraid to voice. And I just want to create a safe place here and voice it for you. This story is very uncomfortable. And it's a weird ending to the narrative. A killing spree throughout the whole empire is a, is a bit of an overkill, literally. 
Plus, it seems that scripture suggests that genocide is permissible and right when carried out by the Jews and reprehensible only when carried out by their enemies. What, what a moral double standard. Some of you have a coworker or a family member, maybe a, a college prof, who mocked the Bible. They say the Bible sanctions genocide. It's a horrible book, and if God wrote it, he's a horrible person. Some of you are new Christians. Maybe you're an old Christian and you haven't been fed meat and, and you walk around saying God is a God of love. He doesn't judge anyone. And then suddenly you open to Esther chapter 9 and you're like, whoa, maybe I don't know this God. Maybe he's not exactly who I thought he was. So when you come to sections like this, you have four options. First, you could ignore it. You could say something like, I'm not a pastor. I'm not really a theologian. I'm just going to skip to something a little more pleasant, the Beatitudes. Someone told me that recently. I just live by the Beatitudes. And I'm like, there's, you know, the, the God who wrote the Beatitudes wrote the rest of the Bible too. So we live by all the Bible. Well, the New Testament is just much easier. So you could ignore it or you could lie about it. Mm. Holy war doesn't seem so holy, so... Let me find some scholar educated beyond his intelligence with more degrees than Fahrenheit that will lie to me and give me an interpretation that makes me feel comfortable. So you can ignore it, you can lie about it, or you can apologize for it. Look, that was the Old Testament God. We serve the New Testament God. Th those stories were God's uh, junior high years. And, and you remember what junior high was like. Wild and stinky well, that's, that's like this for God. God's in seventh grade. And you know, I'm sorry it was like that, but he's really gotten a lot better. I mean, once you finally arrive to the New Testament, it's gummy bears, hugs, Disney musicals. Just, just go there. Now, the fourth option, which I intend to do, is you could teach it. In holy wars, Israel was God's weapon. Israel was the agent of God's righteous judgment. They function as the human equivalent of fire and brimstone. Israel became the executor of divine judgment. And when God called for a holy war, the people that were killed were not destroyed because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. They were destroyed because they were sinners steadfastly opposed to a holy God. The entire redemptive purpose is inseparably bound to the safety of God's covenant people, Israel. Literal physical holy war was once necessary for the survival of the Messiah's race until God's redemptive purposes were actualized in human history when Jesus came clothed in flesh in Bethlehem. In Esther, the author is pointing out to you that this is not about plundering or conquering. It's about stopping Satan's plan to eliminate the Messiah. Now that Christ has arrived on planet Earth, that means there are no more holy wars. We have wars, but no more holy wars. Now, personally, I hold to Augustine's just war theory. There are just wars. So I think we have just wars, but I know from Scripture we have no holy wars. And any modern nation or religion that endorses the concept of modern-day holy war or Arabic jihad, there are always nations or religions that reject the gospel of Jesus Christ and the moral systems that Jesus demands. 
Jesus rebukes in the New Testament James and John for their desire to call down fire on this Samaritan hotel that wouldn't rent them a room. Jesus taught them in no uncertain terms this type of holy war is not our calling as Christians. We are not engaged in an evangelical jihad in which we take up the sword and tell our non-Christian neighbors to convert or die. As Christians, we have abandoned holy war. Not because it was wrong historically. It wasn't. Or because it was somehow sub-Christian and unworthy of followers of Christ. We have abandoned holy war simply because we... Not, not simply because we have become modern people and grown civilized. Rather, we abandon holy war because Jesus fought its last episode. You must follow the trajectory of holy wars. On the cross, God put his own son under the curse of holy war. God the Father laid upon his son the sins of his people. 2 Corinthians 5.12 puts it like this. God made him to be sin. That man who knew no sin. And having laid on our sins on his shoulders, God the Father then poured the full measure of his wrath against sin upon Jesus Christ. All the ugliness and pain of the entire history of the Holy War were concentrated into six hours of awful agony and burning darkness of the cross. His body was not merely tortured and brutalized by the Romans, but he was exposed to cosmic shame. By being hung on the cross. Like Haman and his sons, Jesus' body was hung on a gallow. He was cursed of God. Jesus fully bore God's curse upon sin. Why would he do that? So that you might be saved. Now, I wanted to end it there, but I couldn't in good conscience, and I, I need another 30 seconds of your time. I don't really know how to tell you this, but holy war is not obsolete. It's just been temporarily suspended. The divine warrior who was on the receiving end of God's holy war in a reversal will come again and wage God's final holy war against non-Christians. Friend, you better repent. You better stop playing games. You better run to this Christ for salvation. Because when he comes, he will smite his enemies. A Scottish minister who lived in the 1800s said, The Lord waits long to be gracious. As if he knew not how to smite. He smites at last. As if he knew not how to pity. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.